Hello, everyone, and welcome to Sample Size. The only news podcast that cares about science. I'm your host, Samantha Spears. And I'm your other host, Wildcard Cameron, coming to you from this echoey closet. (laughs) You couldn't call this a closet. It's an office. Echoey office space. Echoey work center. Yeah, we're not in our usual recording space, so it's a little jarring, at least on our end. I'm I'm hopeful that once the episode is released, it will sound good. Yes, we're going to have to crank up that de-esser to get all this nasty reverb, but that's not important. What's important is the news. As you may or may not know, the news never stops, and we can't stop either. So we need to fight the news with our science. Sam, what do we need to know? (laughs) All right. Well, with that great intro, let me tell you that today's episode, we're going to discuss right to repair. What is right to repair? Does it know things? Let's find out. This is my new bit I'm going to do for every topic. I was about to say, did we we do that last time? The last six months, yes. (laughs) So what is right to repair and why does it matter and what are you going to teach us? Yeah, well, okay. thank you for just doing my whole intro for me. So what I was going to say was how President Biden recently signed an executive order calling for right to repair to be legal. There's right to repair laws currently in Congress and some state houses and the FTC just voted in favor of enforcing right to repair. So we have a lot to discuss, mainly what Cameron just said. We're going to discuss what actually is right to repair and why is it important. Actually, I think the first thing I want to just harp on, because I always find one little thing. It's an executive order that they're using for right to repair, which means if there's not meaningful legislation, which it does sound like they're having, whatever comes of this could be immediately undone by the next administration. Yeah, and we're going to get to that. I just gave a laundry list Mm -hmm. of how Mm -hmm. right to repair is in the news, but we are going to talk about that later. So first off, what actually is right to repair? I think the right to repair is literally what it sounds like, which is like my right to fix my stuff. Yeah, that's pretty much what it is. It's the idea that the consumer should have the right to repair products they own. Oh, you're telling me that they created a policy idea and named it something and that something isn't like hiding, like cutting welfare or removing the ability for kids to eat their lunches? Well, it's not a policy idea. It's a movement. It's something that like consumer groups and everyday people are calling for. So that's why the name actually makes sense. (laughs) There you go, guys. Destroy the government and replace it with people (laughs) who will govern over us who are actual people. Okay. well, by getting back to this, it's the idea that manufacturers should not have exclusive claim to repair products, but that individual people and other companies should also have the ability to repair products themselves. And by have the ability, I mean giving individuals and third-party companies the necessary tools, parts, and manuals to repair a product they've purchased instead of relying on the manufacturer of a product. You know what? You're probably going to bring up cars in a second, aren't you? No, I... Do it. Go for it, Cameron. This is my job now is to completely like having never seen your scripts, just completely guess what's going to come next. Do you not understand your role on this podcast, Cameron? I don't know how long (laughs) we've been at this. Yeah, but cars are an exceptional example of this. What's weird to think about is the original cars, like Model Ts and stuff. You basically couldn't own one without being a mechanic. Like people were drivers because they were also mechanics. Like they took care of the car. And part of that was because the cars are so simple. It's not exactly complicated to understand how they work. The engine hooks up to the tires and they just go. And it's amazing to think about like we have a bunch of like body panels and stuff. But back then it was literally like the spot you sat in and Mm -hmm. then just like the metal struts it rode on. 
and that was it. So it was very easy to repair. And over time, I mean, we're going to get into, I think we've done an episode on planned obsolescence, haven't we? Or talked about some of it? I think we've talked about it before. I don't think we've had an actual episode on it. Well, things like planned obsolescence made it so that manufacturers realized, well, if you can always take care of your thing, you'll never buy another one. Mm -hmm. And capitalism demands you buy more. (laughs) So they made it so things would be more likely to break. And when they figured out that they were just making too good of stuff, they would introduce weird things that at the very least would force you to go back to the manufacturer to, if not get new parts, get help to fix it. And this could be anything from the fact that they only have the specific weird lug nut you need because it's like some weird in-between size that doesn't exist in metric or American standards. Yeah. Or that now lots of cars have computers for very good reasons. Like computers are way better than people at figuring out how to accelerate and brake and do all these things without putting the drivers or other drivers in danger. But the problem is you can make it so that those computers aren't easy to access. Like I need a special computer port. They're not USB cables. You need a special port to plug into your car and stuff. And speaking of computers, this is really why the right to repair movement has just accelerated over the past, I'd say, five years is because companies are able to put these locks on these products because of computers and increased technology. This is related back to phones. It can be really difficult to repair phones because the company will have a stranglehold on what you're allowed to do with them and the different parts you need. And really their incentive is they just want you to buy a new phone. They want you to upgrade it every three years. They don't want you to keep your smartphone that's perfectly fine for five plus years. Okay, now I get it. So my planned obsolescence comment was actually perfect because that's the flip side of this is manufacturers literally trying to get you to throw away your thing instead of being able to fix it. Yes. So let's get into the benefits of right to repair. So I have a few listed. One, they would likely encourage more competition for repair services, which could drive down prices for repairs. So cars is the perfect example. When you repair your car, you can choose to go to the dealership or you can choose to go to like a third party repair service like your local mechanic. And nine times out of 10, the local mechanic is cheaper than the Mm -hmm. actual dealership. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it would just bring down prices. The other benefit is since manufacturers would be expected to make products that could be repaired, they would likely force manufacturers to design and build products that are easier to fix or that are just more durable in general. Mm -hmm. And the last benefit would be it would reduce the amount of waste and e-waste in landfills because consumers could extend the life of products they own instead of buying new products. Yeah, like the entire concept of right to repair is built around this idea that the thing you have, you're going to make it last longer. You're not going to just throw it away to make something new. Like the lifetime of a lot of smartphone manufacturing, old phones just go in dumps. Mm -hmm. Like maybe the batteries will get recycled, but most of the phone goes in a landfill, which is terrible for the environment because all that metal is metal is one of the worst things that if you don't recycle it, just the act of getting virgin metal out of the ground destroys the environment so much. Yeah, it's it's bad for the environment. It's just building up on landfills like we're going to run out of landfill space. Everything's just going to be trash. I don't know about everyone else, but to me, it's annoying when I have to throw something away as opposed to be able to reuse it because it's just nicer when you're able to reuse something and not have to waste a thing. Mm-hmm. I want to make I wanted to make a joke because like we already live in a landfill. We just don't know it. <laughs> Also, one other thing I like to point out, I feel like a lot of people, whether they know it or not, have definitely ran into this with their cars because 
I can think of a bunch of times where I've gone to the mechanic and they're like, yeah, these codes came up, but I don't know what they mean. Only the dealer knows. And like the nice thing is the dealer is technically not the guy who sold me my like they didn't make my car. They sold it to me. So there is that like in between buffer that I don't have to go all the way back to spoiler alert. I drive a mini. I don't have to go all the way back to mini to get to figure out what's wrong with my car. But I still have to go to a specific person that in the area has a bit of a monopoly over being able to fix my car. And that's a good point to transition to really our next topic of why don't we have better right to repair laws? It kind of comes down to there haven't been broad laws to make sure that companies allow their products to be repaired. And I mentioned at the top of the episode, that's changing. But first, I want to give some background on some existing laws in the United States that relate to this issue. Hit me. All right. First, the DMCA. So this is a law that's been hindering right to repair. The DMCA, or the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, was passed in 1998, and it covers a ton of stuff. But what applies here is Section 1201, which prohibits the circumvention of technological measures employed by or on behalf of copyright owners to protect access to their works, also known as access controls, as well as the trafficking in technology or services that facilitate such circumvention. Actually, this used to be a reason why you could sue someone for ripping movies off DVDs and stuff, because Mm -hmm. they used to have very rudimentary controls, like you wouldn't be able to just copy the movie directly off the DVD. There would be some sort of software around it. If there's one thing you know about software, software is very easy to copy. The DMCA doesn't make any goddamn sense when you take a moment to understand how software works. <laughs> so when people created tools to copy it, the real point of the DMCA wasn't to actually keep you from copying it. It was to give people a reason to sue you for circumventing a tool that someone could make in their basement literally on the other side of the planet, but that you could download. It's yeah. basically just an enforcement mechanism For a problem that was impossible to enforce. Yeah, and how this relates to right to repair is basically you digging around in a piece of technology or someone selling their services to dig around in a piece of technology could violate a company's copyright. Mm -hmm. And this is a big part of letting a third party be able to repair your thing because this is saying if I'm like a mom and pop shop, like they're literally mom and pop shop hackers Mm -hmm. that learned how to hack into the like John Deere tractor because John Deere has such incredible computer controls on their hardware that these people literally like their job is like they just go and introduce mom and pop shops to this piece of software. Like John Deere tractors are like they're very sophisticated now. They have GPS and all sorts of weird things. And oh, yeah. I, I should point out when I say tractors, I'm not like referring to like the lawnmower. I mean like farm equipment. Yeah. Like John Deere makes a ton of stuff. The all legit these, tractors. <laughs> yeah. Like cat tractors and anything big enough to be on a farm has incredibly sophisticated computers on them, and they really expect you to go to, like, Caterpillar or a licensed Caterpillar dealer to get them repaired. And they're literally, like, just these little guerrilla groups of what you would have to consider to be hackers, people using their computer skill to circumvent controls put in place so that these mom-and-pop shops can actually serve. It's not just that, like, they want to be able to fix the things. They might be the only person who can fix a Caterpillar tractor in, like, hundreds of miles. And that relates perfectly to my next point I'm going to bring up is that the DMCA did include a, quote, safety valve where every three years someone can petition the Patent Office and the Librarian of Congress for explicit exemptions to the law to fix certain products. 
So, for example, farmers have actually been granted exemptions to repair their tractor equipment through similar hacking mechanisms that you just described. And in 2018, iFixit asked for an exemption to fix video game consoles, but they were denied that exemption. That is total BS because I remember when my Xbox 360 red ringed forever ago and I was so mad because I couldn't play Halo for like two <laughs> months. And when I got it back, it red ringed like a week later and I, I can play Halo for another two months. <laughs> I want to say one thing about the safety valve is it is not carte blanche in that as soon as they decide or figure out a way to add a new thing to the software or a new product that they can describe as being discernibly different from the thing that has an exemption, mm-hmm. suddenly you're in the same boat. Yeah, so it's it's not great. It's like a legal arms race. <laughs> so now let's go into a law that's actually in the consumer's favor, which I don't think a lot of people know, and that's the Magnuson-Moss Warranty Act of 1975, and it prohibits manufacturers from telling consumers that a warranty is voided if the product has been altered or tampered with by someone other than the original manufacturer. Cameron, did you know about this? I didn't, but I think this is where patent exhaustion comes from. Okay, because I I did not know about this at all. And even more so when I was researching stuff for this story, I even found articles saying how your warranty could be voided if you try to repair something. So even people writing articles don't know this thing exists. That's how widespread this idea by manufacturers is that, oh, no, you can't repair your iPhone because you can no longer have your iPhone be covered by the warranty thing. Ladies and gentlemen, anyone listening, if I can just say this is what makes this podcast worth it. It's not the incredibly obscure nuggets Sam digs up. It's the enthusiasm she has with sharing them with us. <laughs> this is the entire point. This podcast exists. <laughs> Everyone needs to know how excited she gets about everything. So tell me all about this. That was all about it. <laughs> Damn. That was the What were you going to say about it? I was going to say, like, so the outcomes of it are specifically the case found, I'm guessing, because I don't know a lot about this case, that if I have my Xbox and I fix my Xbox, then they should still be expected to fix it because it was their problem. They did something. It didn't work. They should have been able to fix it. It's not my warranty should still be valid because I had to fix it and they weren't willing to fix it. Yeah, like. And I want to be clear, it's an act. It's not like a case ruling. It's Mm -hmm. an actual act that was passed. But basically, yeah, that you can't put on consumers for trying to fix something they own and Mm -hmm. saying that their warranty is thus voided because of it, that they touched it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But the problem is like this then enters a fun little loophole where like, oh, right, well, you want to fix your iPod? You better send it to us because we're not going to let you go to anyone nearby because that will probably void the warranty. Yeah, like there's obviously still issues going on with the whole right to repair movement. But I just want to get that out there, that if you, (laughs) that due to the Magnuson Moss Warranty Act, a company cannot tell you that your warranty is going to be voided because you tried to fix something on your own. Mm -hmm. Throwing that out there. And now let's get back to the auto repair industry. Because Massachusetts has been really good about passing laws and then forcing the auto industry to do things. More like Taxachusetts, am I right? Oh, all right. But in <laughs> in twenty jokes. But in twenty twelve, a Massachusetts law forced automakers to create public access to repair parts and manuals, which then led to automakers just giving that access nationwide. 
And in 2020, Massachusetts voters approved a bill that gives owners access to data on vehicle computers, which apparently is being challenged by automakers. So we'll see how far that one goes. I mean, the weirdest thing to me is like, does this mean when I get my car is going to come with like a USB cable? I hope so, honestly. Like the thing is like you can buy these. You can buy third party versions of these. They have little Bluetooth sensors and things that you can use to like circumvent admissions tests and stuff. (laughs) Like they're really, there is like a mini black market for these products. And I'm not like saying like you have to go to the dark web to go get them. You can go to Amazon and get the little thing they'll plug into. Like every manufacturer has a different port, but they have one. Yeah. And I think just more importantly, it would give more power to consumers and third party repair services to be able to read properly computer codes and know what's going on. You say that, but like I've already seen my grandma and my mom deal with printers. So like imagine if your car was a printer. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, on that note, now I want to talk about why right to repair is so important and why it's really gained so much support recently. And as most things this decade, it all goes back to the pandemic. What? (laughs) What what is this pandemic? I've certainly never heard of it. Oh my gosh. You you can't even make that joke. Oh, (laughs) you cannot. Okay. But the right to repair issue has gained a lot of momentum lately due to the pandemic, and that's because of medical equipment. Medical equipment like ventilators, monitors, and ultrasound machines often require manufacturers as the only ones who can make repairs, which can be difficult when repairs need to happen ASAP, like during a pandemic, Cameron. Yeah, this is like triple messed up. And you know what? I I bet you're going to tell us. I'm going to let you say it and then I'll say it. I'm going straight into a specific example. Okay, go for it. All right. I'm sorry for butchering this name. Alir Kololi, the director of clinical technology and biomedical engineering at a hospital in California, faced a big problem in April 2020 when there was a recall on an electrosurgical device, which needed a device update from the manufacturer. Well, they couldn't get that update because of the pandemic, and the hospital almost had to resort to switching to scalpel surgeries in cases where this device would have been used except the manufacturers finally allowed hospital staff to fix the machine themselves after hours of calls and meetings. Fun fact, McDonald's also does this with their ice cream machines. Yes. (laughs) And that's why McDonald's ice cream machines are always broken. Seriously, what they're describing here is we just refused to give you a USB stick. Like we wanted you to send it back to us so that we could install software on it. Software goes over to the Internet just fine. Or send someone down there in person to plug the USB stick into the device. Yeah, like if you guys are really going to be like our customer service is great. Why don't you commit to that idea? AT&T. Yeah, I'm looking at you. (laughs) AT&T. And there have been numerous other examples of hospitals having to wait for new ventilators or ones from other hospitals because they're not allowed to repair their broken ventilators. Yeah. So, like, it's it's a big issue. I mean, the, the problem is in all places now, especially for hospitals. On the one hand, parts. The pandemic has exacerbated the fact that if you need a replacement part, lots of manufacturers who are not in the normal supply chain to make the product are having to switch over to making pumps and actuators and every little part that goes into things like ventilators because those other people literally cannot make them at the level even before the pandemic at the demand level that they were seeing Mm -hmm. then you have the simple fact of 
it's software. You have to make sure that like this specific software that's been developed over however long, not just to work with this machine, but often people probably don't realize this. Most like medical equipment is just like iPhones in that is a walled garden where everything kind of has learned to work with other things, but they don't always have open protocols that just like allow them to interact with your hospital. If you have a certain suite of medical gear, it only works with that suite of medical gear. And if they're telling you not that they're going to like roll an an update that like bricks your ventilators, that's every ventilator in your hospital. Like that's insane that people's lives are coming down to software updates. No, the third thing is just like, who fixes them? Like if your hospital can't fix them, think about like the implication there is people literally die. Like this is the literal most life and death example of right to repair. Like Mm -hmm. it's one thing if I can't fix my iPhone screen. It's another thing if the thing that human life depends on cannot be repaired by some member of my staff and I need to wait any longer than the amount of time that person can be off of that device to get it fixed or get a replacement, that person dies. Yeah. It's just like, there's no fun here. It's just dark. (laughs) Could that be the new tagline for our podcast? (laughs) Sample size. There's no fun. It's just dark. All right. Oh, my gosh. Let me read some stances by medical manufacturers. Here's the stance of Scott Whitaker, president and chief executive officer of AdvaMed, an industry group that represents Johnson Johnson, Medtronic, Philips, and dozens of other device makers. So he says that manufacturers authorize technicians are specially trained to fix machines and comply with federal rules, but those performing in-house and third-party repairs may not be. Patients deserve to know that the machines literally keeping them alive here have been repaired by experts who are accountable to and following FDA regulations. So, like, I know you said all those things, but all the companies you mentioned, I just can't get over the fact that they have a fantastic track record on being on the wrong side of the history, but the right side of capitalism. (laughs) (laughs) And other reasons different manufacturer groups have given are intellectual property risks and security concerns. So what is your reaction to that of the patients deserving to know that the machines keeping them alive have been repaired by experts following FDA regulation? I think if it's keeping me alive, I literally do not care who fixed it at all. I will, I will I will. personally thank the person who fixed it. I do not care that it's fixed in an FDA way. It's nice to know that it's not going to try to kill me later, but I'm trying to not die now. I also think, okay, the idea of saying, yes, the people repairing these machines should follow FDA regulation. That's great. Why can't that be hospital staff? Like, I want to be clear. My family doesn't give a crap. They get like free IT services from me. So I don't think they'll give a crap if they get free IT services from medical staff at a hospital. All right. And then intellectual property risks. Okay. Well, that's just capitalism and uh, security concerns. Okay. What's your stance on security concerns? Actually, I have problems with intellectual property risk. So let me, let me tackle that one first, because this is the problem we saw during the pandemic with like vaccine information, like Intellectual property is always used to defend profit motives, but at the cost of often public goods. Yeah. And this was a huge thing where I don't know the specifics of who all was involved. I just remember like Bill Gates was being like reported as having told the United States government, like you shouldn't just give away the like patents and we shouldn't just make all these open source. We should sell them or like make it a licensing structure where we get paid for it. It's like the American people with taxpayer money funded a large amount of the research that went into this. It is a public good funded by 
forward-thinking American policies that wanted an opportunity for a quick vaccine to be produced in the event of a pandemic. There's in the shortest terms, something that was meant to work and did surprisingly well in a surprisingly <laughs> short amount of time, given everything else that went wrong at the start of the pandemic. And then we're being told we want to sell it, yeah. even though this is literally a case of like we are seeing various variants that if we had just gotten this out faster, even if people are going to be this adamant about not taking a vaccine, all the people who would have had access to it and gotten it would have helped slow down the spread. Like I, I, it's like on its face, the IP argument never holds up. It really doesn't. There, there's lots of cases where like patent law and IP law and copyright law makes sense in the short term. Like if I come up with like a really fun idea, I obviously want to protect that idea because my idea, I worked really hard on it and I would like to benefit from it from what is typically only a period of like 10 to 20 years, depending on where you are. Yeah. Having copyright and IP law that stretches into 70 years down the road where you can justify that it's slightly different because you added an, a superficial compound to your drug that is insulin or that you went out of your way to make Mickey Mouse somehow have a longer copyright because you lobbied the right people. That's where we start bumping up into places where you're making a bad precedent that people then can apply to life-saving drugs. Mm. Going back to the security issue, though, yeah, this is huge because we've seen no shortage of examples in recent history. I mean, like the past whole decade where ransomware has completely destroyed hospitals that just do not have the IT infrastructure to deal with them. Yeah. Like if if you guys know about the was a colonial access pipeline, that was the pipeline that had the ransomware attack with bitcoins and it was everyone's favorite ransomware attack for like a week. And the one we did an episode on? Yes. Yes. What was that? A plug? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that was an example of ransomware attack where basically hackers go into your system, lock down the data, and then you have to pay to release it. And hospitals, you think gas pipelines are urgent? Imagine being on a ventilator that suddenly doesn't work because someone put bad software on it. Oof. And so, like, the same problem is here. But, like, hospital staff are no better than Colonial Pipeline staff at buying Bitcoin. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, so I want to be clear. Do you think that's a good reason for manufacturers to be the only ones to repair hospital equipment? Or do you think... So there's actually, I, I don't think I explained any part of this. There's something called security through obscurity. It's basically this idea that by protecting and keeping our software secret, we make it harder for hackers to get into our software. But if hackers invest in one ventilator, they will have access to all the software they need to hack every other ventilator of that same model and make. Mm. In reality, the more you can open source or make your software known, even if they do demand a license for it, the more it puts the onus on that company to actually ensure that in the wild, the software, this system is protected. People were freaked out by some cars being able to be hacked, but it wasn't like the hacker was able to use like a satellite connection to connect to the car. The hackers had to do some very janky, very limited things that required you to literally be inside the car, like have something plugged into the car that had like a cell phone connection or something that they would have had to break into your car to do, which... On his face, you'd think like, oh, no, hackers can hack my car. Like that was a headline. But anyone who paid attention to the stories was like, if you wanted to hack this car, you would basically just have to break into this person's house and kill them anyway. <laughs> like, oh, my God. Like, there's Ooh. nothing special going on there. So that, that should give you more confidence that this technology is actually more secure. And by extension, if they really did more to like make this software available, it puts the onus on them to make good, secure software in the first place. Okay. 
the, the okay, that's good to know. Yeah. yeah. And I want to be clear, the reasons I just gave, they go beyond medical equipment. Like those are kind of the similar reasons that other manufacturers have been giving for why things shouldn't be modified. And now I want to get to our manufacturers right. And the FTC looked into this and they released a report in May where they said there was, quote, scant evidence to support manufacturers' justifications for repair restrictions. So the report detailed a number of instances in which manufacturers may have overstated the risks of thermal runaway, like batteries catching fire, or personal data breaches tied to device repairs. And also in that report, the FTC identified ways that manufacturers have curbed repair rights, including limiting sharing of parts and information, steering consumers to their own repair shops or partners, and enforcing software rights. Isn't this under the new FTC chair who, like, she's just like this hot shot. I'm going to tear down the establishment. I love oh, yeah, she's great. Yeah, she's, we'll she's get to We'll get to more of her work. <laughs> yeah, knock on wood, we're going to have episodes about her. But yes, awesome. Look at my lack of surprise. <laughs> yeah, and, and let me just go through what's being done about right to repair. Basically, the thing I mentioned at the very top of this episode, I mentioned before how President Biden issued an executive order in early July encouraging the FTC to create new rules that prevent companies from limiting customers from fixing their products. And the FTC has recently supported that position. They voted unanimously to investigate repair restrictions, both as potential violations of antitrust laws and from a consumer protection angle. And there have also been numerous right-to-repair laws proposed in local legislature, with at least 27 states considering right-to-repair laws, either general or for a specific industry. And the EU passed a law this year requiring that companies that sell consumer electronics, like refrigerators, washers, hair dryers, or TVs, have to ensure those goods can be repaired for up to 10 years. So I'm very hopeful that the U.S. will have some better right-to-repair laws soon. Yeah, I'm coming on, on three years of having my phone, and my manufacturers making it very clear they want me to have a new phone. So if I could have a phone that was good for 10 years, that would be pretty great. Like, I don't actually like buying new phones. <laughs> <laughs> that would, yes, it would be awesome. It would be a win for consumers. It'd be a win for waste and e-waste and reducing that. It's a lot of wins. It's not really a win for manufacturers, but it's a lot of wins. I feel like with the money they've been making this whole time, they should. <laughs> they've been winning. They're the only winners so far. Yeah. Also, it's going to build a lot of trust in your company if your product is able to last a long time. Like, oh, yeah, I'm going to. That used to be a thing when buying products like, oh, I'm going to spend more to get this fancy luggage brand because I know it'll last me for 20 years as opposed to like the much cheaper one. Anyway, that's my rant. Episode done. <laughs> I suppose if anyone wanted to fact check anything we just yelled about, where would they look? They would look in the show notes where I have all of my sources. Awesome. And also in those show notes, you can find Scott's information. Scott, thank you, as always, for making us sound buttery smooth, even in this wacky, wacky office room. <laughs> and if you have feedback for us about our episodes or want to pitch ideas for other episodes... Feel free to hit us up on social media at Sample Size Show. Yes, all of that information also in the show notes. Till next time, please call your congressman or your manufacturer and tell them that they need to do a better job. <laughs> yes, complain to everyone. <laughs> Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye.